All right. Third week of Advent. I'm going to get another shot at this. Advent means? Coming. Or? Arriving. Good. Coming or arriving. And in Luke chapter 24, 44 through 49, we've read this a few times now. Let me read it to you again to remind you of why we're going through Advent the way we are this year. Jesus had already appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and now he appears again. And starting in 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. He says to the disciples, Don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. Then you will have the power to take the gospel to the nations. But notice what he says here and in many other places. The law, the prophets, and the psalms or the writings. That's how he summarizes the Old Testament, which I'm going to get into a little bit today to give you some help there. Another example of Jesus mentioning this I want to share with you out of Luke chapter 11, 37-54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. How many of you moms would be like, that's right, he needs to. <laughs> this wasn't a, are your hands clean issue. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You look good on the outside, but you are lost on the inside. You fools. What? Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees. And just so you guys know, the Pharisees are the religious people of the day. The experts in the law, the experts in the Bible. So this isn't like just going out and talking to people who do not know God. This is people who believe that they do know God, but do not. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb or herb and neglect justice and love and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the churches. Ooh, synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are, you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> and he said, What do you lawyers? Also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This is like saying, Oh, to follow Jesus means to do this, and this, and this, and this, and it's extra things outside of Scripture that they're putting on people. Some of us do that, and we don't even follow ourselves. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. 
So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed, watch this, from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now why does he say that? Well, that's spanning from the first martyr, if you will, Abel, in the book of Genesis, in the book of the law. And then, if you look at the ordering of the Old Testament, the way the Jewish people would order it, Zechariah is mentioned at the end of Chronicles as the last one that's killed. So he's saying, he's showing you all the, the law, the prophets, and the writings in that order, saying all those who were killed, that's how he summarizes that, who, be, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be requ required of this generation. So another place here where Jesus is explaining or summarizing the whole Old Testament in the same way. So, first thing I do want to share, though, I just want to make sure we don't get confused. When we say Old Testament, New Testament, sometimes that can be misleading. Sometimes when we hear Old Testament, we go, eh, not that important. I want the new stuff. All of it is the Word of God. So you could think of it, another way for Testament, could be covenant. So the Old Covenant, New Covenant. Or the former covenant and the latter covenant. Both, together. Now, when we look at the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, we notice that if you look at the, the Jewish version of the Old Testament, you're going to see that the ordering is different. I've talked about how they would group these books differently and the ordering is different. In fact, if you were to count, there would be more books in our Old Testament or at least a list of more than the Jewish Bible, the Jewish Old Testament. Well, why is that? Well, a few hundred years before Jesus, there was a translation that was made from Hebrew to Greek called the Septuagint. Some of you have heard of that before. The Septuagint, that means roughly 70. And so we don't know exactly why it has that name, but some think it's because of the 72 translators. We translated Jewish people from the, the different tribes. Six from each one of the 12 tribes translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Now, why would they do that? Well, Greek was the language of the time for many. So when you have this Septuagint, this Greek translation, well, that's what we base our English Bibles off of. That's why the ordering of our Old Testament looks like that versus if you were to see a true Hebrew Old Testament, find a, a Jewish person to read, their ordering would be different. And the list of books, they're the same books. And in fact, it's all the same content. But something that they did in the Septuagint was, I told you this a couple weeks ago, they started to uh, separate some of the books. So First and Second Kings. They made that 1st and 2nd Kings instead of just Kings, or 1st and 2nd Chronicles instead of Chronicles. So if you were look at a Hebrew Bible, you would have 24 books there. You look at ours, 39. It's the same content. The ordering is slightly different, and the groupings are different, but it's the same content. But why is this important? Well, that explains to us when Jesus is talking, and he says the, the law, and the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings, he's talking about the ordering of the Hebrew Bible. That's how he's summarizing the whole Hebrew Bible. And what he's saying is, all that's about me. What that's called is the Tanakh. You can see in your notes here, this is a little fun for you guys. When Jesus is doing that, he says the Torah, the Nevim, and Ketuvim, or Torah, prophet, law, prophets, and writings. So if you talk to a Jewish person, they say, what do you, what do you think about the Old Testament? Would, they would say, do you mean the Tanakh? That's what they would say to you, the Tanakh the T and the N and the K there, summarizing the whole Old Testament. So today, 
We're looking at that third section. We, we looked at the, the law. We've looked at the prophets. Now we're going to look at the writings or the ketuvim, the psalms. Why are they called the psalms and not just the writings? They're sometimes referred to as the psalms because it's the first section and the largest section. So, let's look and see what Jesus might have in the best Bible study that ever existed showed the disciples about himself from this section of the scriptures. He showed them a lot more, I'm sure, but here are some things that I think he may have showed his disciples. We'll start in the Psalms. Psalms are written by a few different authors. Many come from King David. This would be the song book or the hymn book of Israel. They would be singing these. And recently, we just, uh, as a church, many of us were studying and praying some of these together. These are praises and prayers that fulfill prophecies and truths that point to Jesus. One psalm you could read is Psalm 2, clearly about Christ. But the one I'm going to share with you is a little bit out of Psalm 22, 1 through 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. That beginning sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Remember, they didn't have numbers back then. You couldn't say turn to Psalm 22. You had to say the first line of the psalm, and then everybody would know what you're talking about. How would we do today with that? This psalm certainly has, in the way, a lot of the Old Testament has a kind of partial fulfillment and then a truer or deeper fulfillment in Christ. So Jesus in Matthew 27, 45 and 46, this is where you're definitely familiar with it. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma, samathathani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he do that? He wants you to go back to Psalm 22 and see what that psalm says. That psalm is about Christ and his death on the cross, but centuries before he ever came. This is one example of what Jesus would have been doing when he was teaching his disciples. Proverbs, written mostly by King Solomon. Proverbs are wise sayings that speak about the true wisdom that comes from God. True wisdom must come from God, and the beginning of wisdom comes from fearing the Lord. Proverbs 8, 1 through 11. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud To you, O man, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, Learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. See how it's describing wisdom? Then we see in 1 Corinthians 1, 20-25, watch this. Where is, the, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. Look, he's called the power of God and the what? Wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness is... And the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's he saying there? He's saying Christ is the wisdom of God. When you go through the book of Proverbs, if you're missing that Christ is the wisdom, then you're not getting the whole point. He is the epitome. He is God's wisdom. Job! How many of you guys want to read all of Job today? No. Author of Job is unknown. This book is aimed at showing the goodness and sovereignty of God. The book is written around the story of Job and the trials that he faces. The book of Job shows us that Jesus is a better Job. You know why? Because Jesus suffers righteously and never questions God like Job does. If you did not know that Job falls, you didn't read enough of the book. You read the first two chapters. If you read the rest of it, you see that he does begin to doubt God and question God amidst his suffering. How many of you do that? How many of you question God and His goodness or His wisdom or His strength when you begin to suffer or those around you begin to suffer? If you do, i got an encouraging word for you. You're like Job. I've got another encouraging word for you. You can have Christ who suffers perfectly for us. Song of Solomon. We're not reading that today either. Mm -mm. Not with little ones in here. Written by King Solomon, although this book focuses on the beauty of marriage, intimacy, and marital relations that God gives as a gift, there are deeper spiritual truths that show the relationship between Jesus and His church. The Apostle Paul picks up on this if you read Ephesians 5 when he explains that marriage points to something greater. Some of you do not understand what marriage is about. It is not all about just having children, although that is a benefit. It is not all about having intimacy, although that is a benefit. And it is not all about having a companion and not being alone, although that is a great benefit. Marriage, Paul says, points to a mystery, something greater. It points to the gospel. It points to Jesus and his church. You go through the Song of Solomon, if you don't see Christ, then you don't understand what you're reading. He would have taught them that. Book of Ruth, probably written by the prophet Samuel, but we do not know. The book of Ruth tells of the redemption of a Jewish woman named Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, which means she worshipped false gods, and she married into God's people. However, there was a lot of death that went on in her family. So the story continues with a hero named Boaz. We talked about him. The man among men. The dude of dudes. Boaz redeems Ruth by marrying her. And they have a child, and that helps continue the line of Jesus. The same line from Abraham and Judah. But Jesus is the better Boaz because he redeems all of us. Lamentations. Very difficult book to read for some of us. Some of you are like, it's my favorite book. I just like to read it and lament all the time. Written by the prophet Jeremiah. This book is about Jeremiah's lamentations about the fall of God's people. What's interesting, it's five chapters, and in the middle of the book, in the middle of the book there's a message of hope that God will save his people even though they have turned from him. God does this through Jesus. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon at the end of his life. The, this book points out the meaningless of life without God and how life is out of control without Him. Some of you have poured your life into work. Let me just encourage you. Work is a good thing, but without God, it is meaningless. 
Some of you right now are pouring your lives out for things that will not matter at all for eternity. Because you are not doing them to the glory of God, and you are not doing them for the glory of Christ. You are working so hard for things that will burn away. Don't do that. Don't do that. You need God to be the central theme in your life, Christ to be the center, and then your work will make sense, or whatever else you're doing. It's because Christ is the one who holds all things together that there is meaning. Esther. The author of Esther is unknown. We went through Esther a while back. The book of Esther tells about how God providentially worked through Esther to save his people from annihilation. Esther serves as a type of Christ to point us to the fact that there is a Savior that's needed. She risks her life for God's people, but Jesus is a better Savior. He risks his life and gives his life to save us physically and spiritually by taking on the wrath of God. The book of Daniel, written by Daniel during the Babylonian exile, this book tells us about Daniel and some other Jews who were taken captive by the Babylonian exile. This book is full of prophecies about the future kingdom, kingdom and the coming of the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you want to know when I believe this happened? Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, all Judea and Samaria, until the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he lifted, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He took him up, and I believe he comes to the Ancient of Days, and he arrives, and he sits down, he's given all authority, and he will one day come back again riding on that same cloud. There's more in the book of Daniel that he could have taught his disciples, but that is at least something about himself. Ezra and Nehemiah, we have those books separate, but they have them together. Written probably by Ezra, these books tell about the return of God's people to the promised land. It highlights the rebuilding of the temple and the finding and rededication of the law and the building of the wall around Jerusalem. There are pointers to Jesus throughout the, the two books, or one book. But they are definitely found in the fact that God's people were made to worship him. Jerusalem, the holy city and temple are earthly places for that to take place. Jesus comes and makes us into his temple. And true worship is in spirit and truth. The last book or two books in this section of the Old Testament or Old Covenant would be First and Second Chronicles. Possibly written by Ezra and chronicles the story of God's people from Adam to the return of God's people to Israel after the Babylonian exile. Since Chronicles is showing the history of God's people, we see the continuous story of redemption that is centered around Jesus. This is a particular focus on the Davidic covenant that is fulfilled by Jesus. You remember we read that before. So how does this all relate to joy? How does this help us with joy in the Christmas season? If you aren't looking for this guy, this Messiah, this Jesus, if you're not looking to him, I promise you this, you will not have joy. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's an overflow of the work of the, work of the Holy Spirit. Read Psalm 16, 5-11. This is where we're going to spend the, just the remainder of our time. 
The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. What the psalmist is saying there is it is, it is the Lord for the psalmist that is his everything. And he understands that it is the Lord who holds his lot, his lot in life. Some of you are not very happy with your lot in life. You don't realize that it's the Lord that holds that in his hand. And so you are constantly pushing against what the Lord has for you. It's hard to be joyful when you do that. The Lord is not your portion. Other things are your portion. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Some of you are more worried about physical inheritance than you are the beautiful one. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Some of you guys struggle with joy because you do not set the Lord always before you. You're setting a bunch of other things before you. And so you don't have joy. You can't. He's not at your right hand, so when something bad happens, you are shaken to your core. And some of you have been shaken recently by things happening. Therefore, my heart is glad. Look at that. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. Why? Because the Lord's always before me, and I've put him at my right hand, so I'm not going to be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of what? What's it say? Joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How can he say that? How can he say that it's at your right hand, in you, the fullness of joy? How can he even say that? Well, one thing is, he is not dependent on the circumstances around him to dictate his joy. You show me somebody who does not have joy in their life, and I will show you either one, that they do not know Jesus, which may be some of you here, or two, which would be more of us here, you do know Christ, but your gaze has gone somewhere else. You are looking somewhere else. And so you're looking to your marriage to give you joy. Let me tell you something. That is not always going to happen. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Don't say it too loud or your spouse. I mean, that's not going to go well. I mean, kind of like a quiet amen. But you are. You're looking to that other person or the marriage to be your savior, and you will not have true joy. Some of you are looking to your kids or your grandkids to bring you some form of fulfillment. What happens when they get sick or they die or something? You will not have joy. Some of you look to that job, and then your job isn't going well. And so when it doesn't go well, you don't have joy. Some of you are single, and you're looking for the possibility of the spouse. And you're saying, oh, if I could just have that. If that's what's going to be contingent for you, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. The more we look to other places, other people to find our fulfillment, the more depressed you're going to be. The only way to find true joy is to be with Christ, walking with Christ. And then every one of those other things that are really good things, they make a lot of sense. They fit in properly. 
But what we tend to do is we elevate, we get things out of whack. We put the wrong thing up above God, and then our joy goes away. Some of you battle depression. Can there be chemical aspects there? Possibly. But it's also possible that you do not have this under, this joy that just flows through, as we talked about before, the, the depression and the swamp and the darkness that's there. There should still be a light. There should still be joy that's coming through. I'm not saying life is easy. How many of you would say life is easy? How many of you say it always goes well? It doesn't. And so we, we have moments where we're happy and we have moments where we're sad and we have these different moments, but there should always be a deep abiding joy because you have God and He has forgiven you. You have God. Do you, do you get that? Like God, the creator of the universe, knows everything about you and has set His love on you and says, I'm going to send my perfect son to go and live for you and die for you. I'm going to give you my spirit to live inside of you. I'm with you always. You are never, ever, ever alone. How many, how many of you guys feel alone sometimes? Do you ever feel alone? You're not alone. If you have Christ, you're never alone. He promises never to leave you. How does this help us? When we look through the Old Testament, we see that Christ is everywhere. He is everywhere. All those different books and stories, He's there. And so you can have joy amidst all those trials, and you can have joy. It's right there for you. Sometimes we'll say, oh, someone took my joy. Oh, he stole my joy. She stole my joy. Guess what? No one can take it from you. You can give it away, though. You can absolutely give it away by shifting your gaze from him to everything else. Think about the guy. Let this, I'm going to end here. This, think about the guy in Matthew 13. He's going through the field, and he's walking along, and he trips. He finds this treasure. He finds the treasure, and what, what does he do? He goes back, cover it up, if nobody else is going to have it. He goes back, and he sells everything he has. Right? He sells everything he has, and he goes, and it says, in his joy, he goes and buys the land. It's in his joy that he goes to that. He forsakes everything else. Nothing else is even compared to Christ and his kingdom. If you focus there, I promise you, you'll have joy this holiday season. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Pray.